Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance podcast on money, investing, the economy, and why they matter. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 21. It's titled Investing Without a Map. Today's episode follows up my episode 20, which was titled How to Allocate Your Assets. And I promised that I would share an example of how I allocate my assets without using a map. Now, what is a map that I'm referring to? Well, in that episode, we talked about most financial advisors or many financial advisors in working with their clients use an asset allocation model that is based on modern portfolio theory. And we spent most of episode 20 discussing modern portfolio theory, how it works, and what some of the flaws are. And I mentioned that I don't use modern portfolio theory to invest my assets. And so I wanted to share with you an example of how to do it without relying on modern portfolio theory. Because with with modern portfolio theory, one of the outputs is certainly is a diversified portfolio of different asset categories, such as stocks, bonds, components of, of stocks, such as small caps, international stocks, perhaps real estate. All this mix. You don't need modern portfolio theory to know that you need to diversify. The challenge, or really, uh, let's call it a flaw with modern portfolio theory, is it focuses very much on the average expected return, and it assumes most returns in a given year fall around the average in a pattern that's called normally distributed. In other words, most of them around the average. You have a few outliers, but not very many. What I showed in that episode is that, in fact, extreme outcomes occur much more frequently than modern portfolio theory suggests. And not only do are there more extreme events, both positive and negative, but also they tend to clump together. Just as if you were fly, as you fly on an airplane, you get pockets of turbulence one after the other. You get pockets of high volatility in investing in the markets. In other words, there's not independence from one year to the next. That is in conflict with what modern portfolio theory says should be. The other thing is that this assumption is that investors are all alike, and we know that they're not. They go through periods of fear, periods of greed, they have different goals, and so all that being said, I don't use modern portfolio theory when investing my assets. Now, for most people, whether they use it or not, it's not going to matter because either their account balances are small or they have many more years until they retire. So they have many more years of earnings powers so they can continue to add to their savings. And, and it's, it's not as if modern portfolio theory, if you use it, you're going to screw up your asset allocation because that's just not the case. But for those that are in a position like myself that are early retired or, or near retirement where an exposure to an extreme event like occurred in 1987, September, October timeframe, when markets fell, the latter two weeks of October, the markets fell over 23% in the United States, over 40% in Australia, and close to 60% in New Zealand. Markets can fall that rapidly over that short period of time. That's an extreme event. doesn't happen very often, 
but it happens more often than the theory suggests. And so it's important to invest in a way that you at least recognize it. Now, if you go to the show notes for episode 21, you'll find a graph there, and it's a stacked area graph, and it shows what my allocation has been over time going back to 2008. Now, if you're in your car, you're exercising, you, you don't need this to, to listen to the episode, but follow up later, you'll be able to see it. And there should be some definite conclusions there. One, my portfolio allocation goes all over the place. In other words, I, I'm shifting. Most output from a traditional asset allocation model using modern portfolio theory would be what's known as a strategic asset allocation. And, in, in, and what all that means is that there's a target in each asset class, and it doesn't change very much. And so you might rebalance once a year, occasionally make adjustments. When I would do this with, with clients, we would typically review the asset allocation about once a year, perhaps make some changes, add additional asset classes. But the changes were never dramatic, certainly not as dramatic as you see in, in that graph. Now, a couple of things. One, this is just an example. Please recognize that I am no way suggesting or recommending that anyone invest in this fashion. And so this is really just for general education and illustration. Two, I, I got an email this week from a listener. Antipon was, was their name. And, and they mentioned that they're not going to ever invest like me because that would be like driving a race car. And, and I, I kind of laughed at the analogy. But I don't, I don't invest like I drive a race car. Because when you drive a race car, the presumption is you actually know what you're doing. When I invest, I do my best to make the best decisions with the information I have. But most of the time, the information available isn't sufficient. There is a quote I want to share with you from Nassim Nicholas Taleb. And I mentioned this book. This is a draft of his book, Silent Risk. I'll put a link in the show notes. But he says, the real world is about incompleteness. Incompleteness of understanding, representation, and information. It's about what one does when one does not know what's going on. When there's a non-zero chance, one just doesn't know what's going on. And, and that's how I invest. It's recognizing that I'm investing into the unknown with a great deal of incompleteness. And if you look at that graph, my one way that I deal with incomplete information, deal with the unknown, is holding large amount of cash. And an example I give, think when you were a child, a kid, you would, you would play tag. And at least when I did, we would have this thing called home base. And home base, if you were on it, could have been a tree. If you touched it, you couldn't be tagged it. And but it was a boring game if everybody just stood on home base and no, nobody ever left. Well, cash for me is home base. So I'll hold cash when I'm just not comfortable with what is going on in the market. So if you look in 2008, I had upwards of 85% in cash. And, and that, that amount will vary. It typically is an 85%, but often 10 to 20% can get as high as 50%. 85% was an unusual situation, but 
the level of uncertainty and risk in 2008 was also very, very high. Now, I can't just stay in cash because, as, as you know, yields or rates of return on cash are, are pretty minimal right now. And, and I need to earn, as I mentioned last episode, a return of inflation plus 3%. And in today's environment, that's 5 or 6%. And the only way that I can do that is I move away from home base. What is my decision criteria for moving away from home base out of cash into other asset classes where there is a higher potential uh, being exposed to an extreme market event such as a loss? Well, I'm looking for the investment equivalent of what in baseball is known as the fat pitch. I played Little League Baseball when when I was younger. I was not very good. I, I held my own out there in right field, which is an indication I, I wasn't very good. Batted probably eighth, maybe ninth. Could have batted tenth if that was an option. So I rarely saw a fat pitch. But a fat pitch is if the ball comes at you and it just looks it looks like a beach ball and it just you can hit it really hard you can hit it out of the park in the investment world a fat pitch is where everything lines up so the valuation are very very inexpensive and in a few episode uh, listener Brad said you know you really ought to do an episode on, on what does it mean for something to be undervalued because I, I hear this this phrase everywhere, undervaluation. But what, what, what does it mean? How do you measure that? So I'll, I'll do that in an upcoming episode. But the one criteria, is it undervalued? So is there an asset class that's undervalued? That's one element of a fat pitch. Two, it just can't be undervalued, though. That, otherwise, you can fall in what's, into what is known as a value trap, where you aren't able to, well, it just stays cheap for a long, long time. And so what I'm looking for is an asset class that has got to an extreme undervaluation, usually due to investor fear, but then it starts to rebound. So it hits an extreme, then reverses and starts to have a positive trend because, as I mentioned, the returns from one year to the next are, not, are, are, are dependent. In other words, they're not independent. There is a momentum aspect to the financial markets. That's not supposed to be there according to modern portfolio theory, but it is. And so when there's an asset class that's extremely undervalued, it's hit an extreme and has begun to reverse in a positive direction and start to appreciate that's an opportunity that's a fat pitch. The other backdrop to that, though, it's, it's even better if the economy is starting to improve, is in a a positive trend. And even better if central banks are being very accommodating by keeping interest rates very, very low. That was the environment in 2008. The the economy appeared to be bottoming in the the fall of 2008. And, well, there was just starting indication. It didn't really bottom until the beginning of March. But valuations had got so cheap for emerging markets, for non-investment grade bonds or high yield bonds, for convertible bonds. And if you see, as I went into the late 2008, early 2009, I invested in those 
asset classes and, and did some of that same investing for my clients. We moved into emerging markets probably October, late October 2008. We were, we were a little early. Sometimes when there's a fat pitch, you go in a little early. But that's an example of, of changing. And so I'll change my allocation based on these opportunities. Now, fat pitches don't occur very often. And you still, I still, I just can't stay in cash. And so I'm always looking for asset classes that are attractive in some way or seem to pre- prevent, present an opportunity to earn some additional return, return so I don't have to stay in cash. But I never put enough in any given investment that if it fell dramatically that I would be irreparably harmed, something catastrophic. And, and so it, it, is, it is a very diversified portfolio mix as you look at that. And my holding vehicles, what vehicles am I using, are very much the vehicles that I described a few episodes ago, ago in terms of what investment vehicles or what are investment vehicles. And, and so I use mostly exchange-traded funds and closed-end funds. So I use both of those. Occasionally, I'll use a mutual fund, particularly some of the bond mutual funds I will use. But those are the investment vehicles. And then I'll adjust. I also, if you look at that, use private vehicles. So I have an allocation to private capital, leveraged buyout funds, venture capital, some real assets. I have an allocation to direct lending, which I'll talk about in a few minutes. I have a very fairly large allocation to private real estate, and that excludes my primary home. So that is a farm that we own, some other land, as well as some a, a recent rental real estate project that we just invested in that I'm working on rehabbing. So we, well, I don't rehab it myself, but basically working on it so it generates some income. And, and But there's a number, number of other asset types that I hold. You'll see that I hold a fair amount of fixed income. And in our next episode, episode 22, I'm going to talk about interest rates and, and will interest rates ever increase again and how interest rates work. Because there's been this, I'll call it fear-mongering, or just fear that interest rates are going to skyrocket. And, and, and there's been these predictions for that for two or three years. Uh, really, four or five years, we've not seen it. So I am comfortable investing in real in bonds and fixed income, and I'll explain that in more detail in the next episode. So it is a very diversified asset mix. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. What do companies like Ring, Hint, and Tagovas all have in common? They all use NetSuite to accelerate their growth. Successful companies know that in order to grow faster, you must have the right tools. Whether you're doing a million, 10 million, or hundreds of millions in revenue, NetSuite by Oracle gives you the tools you need to accelerate your growth. With NetSuite, you get a full picture of your business, finance, inventory, HR, customers, and more. It's everything you need to grow all in one place, right from your phone or computer. NetSuite will give you the visibility and control you need to make the right decisions and grow with confidence. That's why NetSuite customers grow faster than the S&P 500. NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system, trusted by more than 19,000 companies. It's the last system you'll ever need. Schedule your free product tour right now and receive your free guide, 
Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits at netsuite.com david. That's netsuite.com david, netsuite.com david. Cash is home base. I'm looking for fat pitch opportunities. But I'm doing a third thing, and I'm always experimenting. I'm trying things out. Because I. the reality is I make a lot of mistakes when I invest. Yeah, I might have been 85% cash in 2008, avoided most of the, the sell-off. But I still had an, an example of some investments where I lost a ton of money in, in an, on an absolute basis in those specific investments in that 2008 time frame. I bought, for example, a call option on Citigroup because I saw that banks had gotten so cheap and I, and I was convinced myself that Citigroup, one of the largest banks in the world, was not going to go under. So I bought a call option. A call option is essentially a derivative security where you benefit if the price of the underlying stock goes above what's called the strike price. I believe I set my strike price at about 20 it never got back to that during the year or so that I held that call option, so it expired worthless. I lost money. One of the rare opportunities I bought an, an investment based on an individual company. Occasionally, I'll do that. We talked about that in episode three, should you buy individual stocks? And I said, hey, that's fun to do that, but never invest, always invest an amount that you're willing to lose if you lose it all. Another investment in individual stocks where I pretty much almost lost it all, was in the 2007 timeframe. A number of my clients invested in a venture capital fund that was focusing on the medical device area, pharmaceutical area. Essentially, it was a healthcare venture capital fund. So investing primarily in private startup companies, but it would also do investments in some select public equities, and that's called a private investment in public equity, or, or PIPE is the acronym. And I thought, that's a pretty smart manager. I'm going to invest in a five or six of their holdings just to see maybe one of them will work out. Maybe they'll get a drug approved. or it, I was really looking for a surprise event. So I, I put roughly, I don't know, eight to $10,000 into five or six companies. My timing was impeccably terrible as the market sold off. These companies sold off. They were high-risk companies. Some of them had challenges. I lost 80% of my funds in, in that investment. But it was an experiment. So I'm always trying new things because I, I like to invest. Many people don't like to invest. I love to invest. I am always experimenting, trying new things. In the 2011-2012 time frame, I thought, hey, I've invested or research hedge funds for years. I have been particularly fascinated by hedge funds that are effectively traders. And, and I'm generally a longer-term investor, but I thought, I'm going to try my hand at trading. So I set up an account. I started trading futures, trading options on interest rates, trading precious metals, gold, silver, and I learned that I am not a very good trader. I just don't like to lose money. And, and to my understanding to be an effective trader, you need to be willing to let some losses ride. And I just, I wasn't patient enough. And, and honestly, when I looked at how gold and silver bounced around from day to day, 
for, for no apparent reason, much more than it seems like other asset classes, that I just I just couldn't I couldn't get an edge. I couldn't get some type of informational edge to be an effective trader. So I, I gave that up. But that was an unsu- another unsuccessful experiment. So that's how I invest. It it looks a little hyperactive. It looks like I'm timing the market. And and if you look at that, you would say, David, you're timing the market. No, I'm not. Because to me, timing the market means you actually are forecasting what you think will happen. And, and I don't know what happens is going to happen. And so I have my home base cash. I move into opportunities I think are attractive based on valuation, based on momentum, based on trends, the other backdrops. I'll never take a very large position in them. And I see how it works out. And I'm always adjusting. With my level of concern regarding the unknown, incompleteness increases, I will raise cash because cash is my home base. There's one other investment I want to, to share with you, and it's what I call direct lending. And there's a type of investment platform that has become very popular late called peer-to-peer lending. Examples include the Lending Club, Prosper, and this is an opportunity where you can lend to an individual through their platform at a 8 to upwards of 20% interest rates. And I invested or did this back in 07 timeframe with Prosper, and I thought this was pretty cool. I'm, gonna, I'm going to invest in, in these individuals. And I found that I wasn't terribly good at that either because with these direct lending platforms, the, the default rates are extremely high. It, for Lending Club, for example, if you look at the default rates, they rate their credits or the individuals. A is the highest, B, C, and then down, down the line. I don't know what the lowest letter is. A B-rated credit on the Lending Club as I looked at the statistics, and Lending Club's very good about being transparent, 10% within the first two years, 20% default rate with C credits. And this is during a good recovery. And so I lended with Prosper. I tried it for three or four years. I remember doing one loan for a, a, a lady that was a baton teacher, and she wanted a car. She actually paid that note off. Many of them did not as the economy went into a recession. And I made about 3 to 4%. Lending Club publishes their statistics. And it's, it's pretty interesting when you look at that. Many people go into these peer-to-peer platforms and say, I'm going to earn 12 to 13%. And they look at these high rates of return. They look very, very attractive. But if you look at the data and you look at, there's some graphs there. And you can look at for accounts. So this is a representative sample of accounts. So individuals that are on the platform making loans that have a diversified portfolio mix, their holding period is 24 to 30 months. All credits, so not the highest, but all credits, the return, the median return is 6.8%. And which for some people might seem an acceptable return. I'm a little doubtful whether that 6.8% will continue as you go to a 36 to 48-month holding period because many of these notes are 60 months. It could get lower to that. And so I look at a 6 6.5% return. I, I'm not comfortable investing at that level. That's the median. 
Now, you might think, well, I'm better than median. I can do a better job picking loans. And in, in my mind, this isn't any different than trying to outperform the market. The median return on the lending club is 6.8%. Why do you think you have some type of edge, informational edge, to be able to better pick loans that is going to outperform the market of 6.8%? So that's one reason I don't use the lending club or Prosper anymore. The direct lending that I do, I like to lend directly to individuals I know. I lend at 7%, and I lend at a rate that I think is fair to them, I believe is fair to me, but also allows me, if there's some challenges, to do a workout, to trade. I've had individuals where I've lent to, it just they ran into some trouble, and so we traded. They came and helped paint uh, our house inside. So I, I like the relationship to, to know them. The other reason I don't like to use traditional peer-to-peer lending platforms is I just think the interest rates are too high. The rates at, at 15 to 20%, I just think is too high for an individual to borrow at. And, and it's not that those rates are, are, aren't justified because even though the rate's 15 to 20%, again, the average or median return is only 6.8%. So you have to factor in the, the default rate. A couple years ago, I had a friend that wanted me to do some lending. He was starting a used car lot with his father, and he he wanted to know if I wanted to do some asset-based lending to these individuals that were buying the cars, typically a four to $5,000 car, very poor credit, perhaps prior bankruptcies. And I thought, yeah, I'll do that, but I don't want to lend at 20% like many of these car lots do. I'll look. Why couldn't I do it at 10 to 12%? That seems more fair. But then I talked to an individual that has had a series of these lots and lent on used car, and, and he says something very enlightening to me. Many individuals that are buying four to $5,000 cars with poor credits at a 20% rate really see that transaction as more of a rental. And as soon as that car breaks, they abandon it because the rate's so high, they don't necessarily have the money to fix the car. They'll stop making payment. They'll abandon the car. They're typically equipped with GPS and a second set of keys. And whoever the car dealer that lent on the car goes and gets the car back. They find it and they bring it back. And so they're, they're circulating the cars, but the default rates are 20 30%. And that's why many of these car lots charge kind of 18 to 20%. That's why credit card rates are so high because the default rates are high. And that's why... Interest rates on Lending Club and Prosper are high because the default rates are so high. That being said, I much prefer lending directly because I like to be able to know who I'm lending to, and I'm just not comfortable with with high default rates. So that's one example of how to invest without a map. I start with home base. I'll move away from home base when I see opportunities. I generally am comfortable holding large amounts of cash. Some of the best investors I know, my investor mentors, such as Seth Klarman of Balpost Group, he will hold or his firm will hold 40 to 50 percent cash. I'm comfortable doing that, not having all my capital exposed when I'm not sure what's happening. I'll move away from home base into opportunities. Hopefully there's a fat pitch looking for undervaluation, looking for investments to hit an extreme and reverse 
and hopefully the backdrop of accommodative central banks improving economy. What has my performance been? I can tell you that I've met my financial objective. I have outperformed the market if the market is defined of stocks and bonds in a, in a weighted allocation. I can't give you the specific performance because the disclosure list would be way, way too long and, and I, I just I can't do that from a, a compliance standpoint because I'm no longer a registered investment advisor. For the same reason, I can't give you the specific holdings, securities they hold, because that could also be construed as an investment advice. So wanted to share a couple things with you. First off, you can get that map or that graph of my allocation over time at moneyfortherestofus.net. That's also where you can sign up for my weekly insider's guides where I've been answering listeners' questions on a weekly basis that hopefully everyone benefits from. Also, that's where I share the show notes. Had you been already signed up, you would already had gotten the graph of my allocation over time. So that's at moneyfortherestofus.net. That's where you can also or go ahead and email me if you have questions at jd at jdavidstein.com. In particular, please email me in a future week, in a future episode in, in upcoming weeks. I'm going to talk about how to maximize our well-being with the minimum of consumption, which was a topic I discussed in the episode "Live Like You're Already Retired." I also want to. I'm also going to talk again about how to live like you're rich without the money. And I'm looking for examples from listeners of how they do those two things. Please email me examples of how you feel like you're living like you're rich without the money or how you feel like you're maximizing your well-being with the minimum level of consumption. Not Perhaps not in your entire life, but just certain examples. So email me that, jd at jdavidstein.com. Also, wanted to let you know that I had a wonderful conversation with Joshua Sheets at Radical Personal Finance. I was a guest on his podcast, episode 57. So if you go to Radical Personal Finance, I think it's RadicalPersonalFinance.com, look for episode 57, and and we have about an hour discussion talking about early retirement and the institutional investing world. Everything I've shared with you today is for general education only. I've not considered your risk profile. I've not provided investment advice. Please keep that in mind. I only spoke about money investing in the economy and why they matter for your educational benefit. Next time, episode 22.